Hi, and welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. I'm the host, Nick Johannesson, and my guest today is Sam. Would you like to introduce yourself, Sam? Oh, hi, Nick. Uh, it's lovely to be here. Um, I'm Sam Goats. I'm an artisan weaver. I call myself an artisan weaver um, of cloth, which I make for tailors and small businesses. I have a, a little mini micro mill in the northeast of Scotland. Um, and I absolutely love what I do. Now, your company name is Woven in the Bone. I'm sure there's an interesting backstory there. There is a little story there, yes. Uh, it's the name of a poem. <clears throat> and it's from a beautiful little uh, a little book called Weaving Songs, um, which is a book of poetry by Donald S. Murray. Uh, his father was a Harris Tweed weaver. Um, and he has a number of uh, little poems about weaving and life as a weaver. And uh, Woven in the Bone is one of those poems. And it's about the colours in the landscape uh, under your feet and how they can be evocative of place and how those colours can be captured in, in tweed. In cloth. So, as, as somebody that spent her uh, art school days, you know, on the moors, on her hands and knees, taking photos of heather and mosses and lichens and things like that, it just seemed particularly appropriate for me. Um, uh, and also, it just had a nice kind of warm feel to it, I thought. So, uh, yeah, so I'm very. The only, the only catch with it is it's an awfully long one to write your email address. <laughs> you know, Sam at Woven in the Bone gets a bit of a... Uh, uh, I have to repeat it a couple of times when I'm when I'm giving people my email address. So in that sense, it wasn't the best name, but hey-ho. There is that. Now, you mentioned Harris Tweed. We'll come back to that. Yeah. But you have had quite a long and interesting career within weaving and textile design and so forth. Could you yeah, take us through that? Uh, from from the very beginning, I mean, uh, even before I studied weaving, uh, my mum was, you know, of that generation, the sort of war generation where, you know, they make do and men. So, you know, sewing machines and knitting needles and crochet hooks were all over the house. Uh, I mean, she she did teach me how to make my own clothes when I was sort of teenage time. Um uh, I kind of gave that, well, you know, student years, I made my own clothes and coats and things like that. Um, so I've always been around that making side of things and textiles was big. Mum was also into patchwork and embroidery and everything. So uh, when I decided, when I went to art school, I kind of, uh, I was, I, I really enjoyed drawing. So I was kind of split between um, painting or art, art, an art degree or a design degree, but um, I kind of decided that uh, I wasn't very good at getting up in the morning, which we've discussed, and uh, I really needed a job. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, I would never get out of bed. So, uh, so I opted for the design degree, and the department that appealed to me the most was embroidered and woven textiles. So, uh, 
I, I got into that in second year and uh, as soon as I met a loom I was I was pretty hooked so um, so yes I've worked in weaving all my life after after art school I finished my degree did um, weaving for interiors furnishings um, and decided to go uh, on a holiday and my sister was in Australia so I decided that, and since I didn't speak any languages, I thought, well, if I go to Australia, I could maybe get the working holiday and and uh, stay there for a wee while and then backpack back, as as was the thing at that time. And, uh, of course, I, I got to Australia. I, I got My first job was in a, in a shop selling fabric in a big department store. And I uh, got kind of bored with that, started writing letters, ended up with a job in a mill, 14,000 miles away from home. And my job was a, an assistant designer and we were I was weaving hand samples on the same looms that I used in college on the other side of the world. So it just, it was meant to be. It was great. And after that, I was hooked. Um, yeah, I've worked in the industry all my life since then. Um, initially, weaving hand samples, then I was uh, my my senior designer left, so I got her job after my first year, um, wow. and then had to train somebody else. Um, so it was a very steep learning curve, and it was a it was a small family owned mill. So I. Uh, I was doing all the design work. I was seeing all the customers. I was doing all the costings. I was doing all the quality control when it came in from the factory. I'd have to check every uh, every piece. It was it was great. I loved it. Um, so good learning curve. After that, went into another job um, for one of my customers, which was more uh, interior textiles, and it was more design. Um, and we worked with different mills all over the world. Uh, this has become a very long answer, hasn't it? <laughs> Keep going, it's great. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so my second job was with a company called Instal Contract Textiles, um, and we did woven textiles for interiors, contract interiors, so that was mostly offices, um, but also uh, hospitals, transport, um, hospitality, public buildings, all sorts. Um, and it was both Dobby design and Jacquard design. So that's two different types of uh, loom, weaving loom. Um, very varied, mostly wool. We're in Australia, so of course a lot of merino. Um, but we also wove other fibres, um, for different fire retardant polyester for hospitals and things like that. So uh, it was a great, it was such a good learning experience. Um, we were working with different mills, both in Australia and America and Europe and Japan. Um, so you got to sort of a really good sense of the industry on a sort of global scale as well. So, um, yeah, brilliant, brilliant kind of career I thought and uh, I didn't want to go anywhere else it was uh, you know I, I loved it uh, but eventually after 20 years in Australia so it was a long holiday um, uh, I decided it was kind of time 
to come back to Scotland because my mum was here. My dad had passed away sort of 10 years before. So uh, I was very conscious of time and, and being away from family. And uh, at that point, I was probably about 40. So it was kind of, well, if I don't make a move now, it's probably going to get harder to do that. I've still got a bit of time to maybe retrain or do something else. Um, so that's what I did. Moved back to Scotland. Moved in with my mum uh, to look after her because she was 80. And it was just time for her to have a little bit of support herself. Um, and that gave me the opportunity because I had a kind of secure, I guess, base to work from um, that I could, I was a little bit flexible in what I could do for work. So I, I looked around for consultancy work, um, well, any kind of work really, uh, design work. I did a bit of product development for a mill in Belgium, but then I landed, and this is where the story comes around, uh, I landed a two-year project um, to develop training for Harris Tweed Weavers. So that eventually is what introduced me to these little, gorgeous little Hattersley looms um, and and sort of planted the seed of, oh, I'd really like one of these and I could have my own little mill because I loved, I loved working in the mill in Sydney. Um uh, and that didn't come around for a while because I had other work, um, and and that work tended to be a little bit more in the training side of the skills and development on training for for industry. So it was it was fascinating and it was challenging, and you know I felt like I was giving back a little bit, um, but it wasn't creative and it wasn't really me. Um, so in the end, uh, a time came along where that kind of work was was going down, um, and I had an opportunity of a of a loom came up. So I grabbed that, and and that was kind of the start of woven in the bone. Um, quite a long journey to to work out what that business would be, and and how I could make a living out of it because for anybody I think in the creative industries on your own it's you know it's quite hard and quite unusual to actually make a living that would support yourself um uh and yeah uh, here I am still plugging away at that and working away but uh yeah no pretty happy with where it's where it's where it's taken me and it definitely feels like this was you know this is where I'm meant to be uh, after after quite a long faluted journey around the world, um, I'm where I want to be, which is that great. Is quite, that, that is quite, quite the story. story. Thank you. Um, <laughs> he says. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, now, in some respects, what you are doing is like Harris Tweed. You're using the same same looms, um, well, kind but of. you're not. Yeah, well, because, um, I mean, the Hattersley looms, I mean, the bulk of Harris Tweed now, I think probably at least 95% of Harris Tweed would be on the wider looms. So in the in the 80s, they brought out a, a, a brand new specifically designed loom, uh, which was double width uh, and is more of a cycle action 
It's a, a rapier loom. So the big difference is it's not a shuttle. It's a rapier loom and it's a, a cycle action rather than a sort of um, up and down treadle action. So uh, while there was a understand somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 Hattersley looms in the Hebrides in the 60s, uh, I, you know, fraction, a fraction of that there now that are actually producing. There are independent weavers still working on the Hattersley, and, and I think that's brilliant. Um, but the, the bulk of Harris Tweed now is on a different loom. So it is, I think there is a difference. Yeah, I suppose basically on the rapier loom, you're weaving about twice as much per hour. Uh, well, no, they, well, this, well, uh, I mean, you're weaving twice the width. So I suppose for somebody that's making, uh, that wants to buy cloth for a jacket, they, they might buy two and a half metres of double width. But for uh, a single width weaver, they're probably going to have to buy, you know, five metres. So the cloth is going to take twice as, even if you're weaving at the same rate, the customer has to buy twice as much. So it, it is quite a significant difference. Um, certainly from the um, customer's point of view. <laughs> mm. I mean, uh, you're, you're right. It is similar in a way. Um, and in that respect, part of, I suppose, part of the challenge of, of trying to set up on your own was how do you how do you compete or not compete with an industry that's been around for a hundred years that everybody knows about, um, uh, and not be doing the same thing. So, uh, I guess from that point of view, um, that was quite a conscious decision for me to to do try and use all the skills that I'd kind of collected over the years of different types of cloth and doing a range of different cloths instead of just one cloth. Um, so that's that's what I do. And I, I like to think that I offer, I offer my customers a selection of different types of fabric. So that makes it also, it makes it good for if you've got uh, one customer doing one cloth, another customer who's maybe in the same market can do something quite different. And, you know, they both got something really unique and individual um, from me, but, but for them as well. So they're not both trying to do the same kind of cloth, but just in different colours and a different pattern. So um, that's I suppose that's where I feel like I'm different from from the <coughs> from the the Harris Tweed weavers. Mm. Because you couldn't actually have woven Harris Tweed oh, unless you took your took your Hattersley over to the Hebrides and yeah. set up in a shed. Uh, absolutely, and you know there would there would be there would be. I mean, I, I, I can't I can't compete on a lot of levels, and so yes, I couldn't have called it Tweed. I couldn't have called it Harris Tweed anyway. So then you'd be kind of competing, you know, an unknown individual competing with a, a hundred-year-old worldwide global brand uh, would have been, well, trying to do something different, which you had to do to survive, really. <laughs> because if you had been living on the Hebrides, you'd have been weaving for one of the Harris Tweed mills, but 
in that you're in Bucky outside Inverness, which I have actually visited on a rainy day a couple of three years ago. No, just Inverness. Oh, Inverness. <laughs> it's not a place I recommend going to, but uh, <laughs> uh, but since you're in Bucky, you have the freedom to weave whatever you like. Exactly, as 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 the as anybody on the Hebrides would have if they wanted to. But um, yeah, no, I have the. That's the opportunity is to. Um, yeah, free free to be able to make whatever I like, and uh, I suppose for anybody starting a business, it's you know what what business, what kind of business do you want? Um, yeah, welcome to a world of endless possibilities. Is my favourite fridge mad fridge magnet. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, and uh, but that's quite hard if. To set up any kind of business, I think, is is way harder than than uh, you ever think when you get started. Um, but at the same time, the the satisfaction's amazing um, when it goes right, when the loom's working. Uh, not so much when it's not. Um, yeah, so I had the opportunity to do whatever I wanted, and um, yeah, I'm kind of pleased with how it's how it's going so far still got to keep going which is another project but <laughs> i suspect having a loom is the smallest part of making a business of it uh yeah well i think that's the you you forget how how complicated how many things there are to to juggle whether it's down to remembering to order you know um cardboard tubes to put the rolls on or um all the stationary stuff that you need to to have uh down to forecasting um how your sales are gonna go i mean for me that one of the biggest challenges is the I can only make a finite amount of cloth. So um, when you're, particularly when there's one of you, it's, it's, I mean, you know, my sister sort of helps out now as well, but I try not to factor her in too much because, um, you know, she's part-time, she's learning. uh, You can't plan how things, how long things are going to take. So um, if, if I, and really, last year was probably the busiest I've ever been flat out, which that's another story about pandemic, I suppose. Um, but until until you're really pushed to the limit, you don't really know how much you can make. So now I know how much I can make. That's the most money I'm ever going to make. Uh, I did manage to pay all the bills, but I can't possibly keep up that number of hours. Um, so, so I'm now having to sort of wind back a little bit and try and plan, um, plan how many customers do I support because I'm not, because I'm selling business to business. Um, I think it's a little bit of a different kind of business model to just making and then trying to sell it all. Um, I'm having to book things in sometimes, I mean, last year I was in January. I was talking about deliveries for December. So it was like, how do you plan a year in advance 
what somebody's going to want. And, you know, my big customer who hasn't given me an order yet, and yet I'm getting all these other orders, how am I, if my big customer comes back and wants an order, how am I going to fit it in when we're talking nine months in advance? <laughs> uh, you know, so there's there's a lot of time. Uh, I mean, I I'm, I have a, a notebook. I rewrite my production schedule every couple of months because it's always changing. Um, and uh, so a lot of the job is, is juggling that kind of thing. So you're not even at a loom. You're not <laughs> you're not actually making anything. You're just planning. Um, and then, of course, you know, global pandemics come along and suddenly what you thought you had a year of order, maybe that's going to change. Is it going to change? Isn't it going to change? Um, because uh, developments can take, um, uh, well, you know, I think you spoke to, to Paul S.E.H. Kelly. Well, uh, you know, we've been working on that for well over a year. So, uh, so you're, you know, you're planning all sorts of things so far in advance. Uh, it's quite, it's quite an amazing juggle. And then at the same time, you'll get somebody as uh, I got a call day before yesterday. Um, I've left it a wee bit late, but is there any chance you could make a, a new fabric for us? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> uh, so you know, you're getting inquiries all the time, so it's trying to juggle things because something maybe got cancelled, so maybe you could slot that in or do you try, try and shuffle everything forward? And uh, Yeah, and that's before you're actually making anything. So it's it's a, an amazing juggle of, of different roles and, and trying to communicate with people. Um, you're, you're, I mean, the way I've, t- I've chosen to do it is I, I, I build up a, a sort of, I suppose, a... A collection of customers, and you know, I'm all they're they're first. You know, their first priority is the established people that are coming back year after year, um, and then you're trying to to add in new customers where it's appropriate because some things um, I can't take on too much work for somebody that wants a delivery in in August September because then because everybody wants something for autumn. So, uh, you know, I can't do very much that works on a sort of a fashion season uh, or a fashion retail season because I can't produce any more than, you know, two customers in, in the summer might be it. Uh, so it's it's uh, a very interesting process. <laughs> It strikes me that SDH Kelly must be one of your sort of perfect customers in that they're not at all seasonal and they do have a sort of long plan. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, no, they, they were great. Uh, I mean, they're so... Uh, and uh, Which is the way you kind of hope the whole industry would go in a way in that they're their main focus is on getting the right cloth to make the right product. And um, it's not driven by some external force, say fashion trends, seasons, colors, you know, it's so, and their commitment to, you know, provenance and the story and, and, and integrity of the cloth uh, 
that's that's absolutely perfect. And yeah, the fact that that he that Paul is so easygoing and so lovely to work with, um, you know, that's that's just the icing on the cake. Um, so yeah, I, I like to think it it worked really well. Um, and and like I said, hopefully we'll we'll do some more. Um, yeah, it's now I noticed Paul does make a big point of that you have woven his cloth. So for him, name dropping, woven in the bone is a big thing. Do you have other sort of big customers that actually see your connection as a selling point? Uh, definitely. Um, uh, Anderson and Shepherd have been supported me from the beginning. Um, and uh, and they always, they always mention me in their posts. Um, if the, you know, with the cloth, uh, it, you know, it it does. Well, it obviously it obviously helps me more than it helps them. Um, but uh, you know, it's a it's a lovely sort of reciprocal appreciation of what each other does. I think um, Timothy Everest also made a feature of um, the cloth story um, on their last autumn winter and there'll be another one uh this season um they sent a photographer up to all the way up to to bucky to to come and visit and take photos um uh so yeah i guess that's in some ways part of what i offer in fact most people actually come to think most people not everybody uh, but most people kind of like to kind of what's the word? They they are appreciative of the of the cloth story. So to be able to share that on social media, let's face it, you know we all want something interesting to to post on Instagram, um, and it means that so I you know, part of what I do normally is I'll take photos of what I'm working on as I'm going through the various stages. And and for the most part, that's about helping, giving the customer some sort of connection to, to the cloth and how it's made and how long it takes to make and what's involved in doing it. Um, and for my customers to sell that cloth to their customers, that's that's something they can utilize as well. They don't, they don't always have to send a phot- photographer up, or um, you know, it depends on on their their approach and what what they want to do. But yeah, I think it's a it's a night. I know it's all part of the way of the world at the moment in business, and people are interested in where things come from and how it's made. I mean, I think the food industry and the slow food industry was was the start of that donkeys ago um so the the fashion industry and fashion revolution and who make your clothes that's all been simmering in the background as well and from my point of view i know that in my whole kind of career in the industry even when i worked in a little mill and we had a little um little wasn't quite big wooden floor loom that we used to weed the samples on you know 
managing director's favourite thing was to bring the customers in and show them the loom and show them, you know, the threading up and the, the weaving because without fail, the customers would go, oh, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know how, I didn't know, you know. So, uh, you know, f- from the last 30 odd years, I've known that people are interested in how cloth's made. Um, so that's part of what I do. And that becomes part of my story and the cloth story, and and in a world where things are made in big factories, nameless, you know, people making things. Um, I think people like that, and it's quite refreshing. I think you're definitely onto something there, because what with uh, the sort of moved now slower fashion and being transparent about your suppliers and all this i mean there's definitely something more visual about a small company weaving and the hattersley looms i mean are very um photogenic photogenic (laughs) (laughs) so if you're going to say that your cloth has come from so-and-so place having a hattersley loom to be shown instead of a basement in birmingham say random example nothing against birmingham yeah uh, absolutely. I mean, I don't make. Uh, I don't think I make too. I don't make as much of where I am as I could do, uh, because I just don't have time. Um, but I mean, I, I did have a, a visitor yesterday, and uh, where I am, I'm, I'm right, right on the edge, right in the middle of the harbour front. Uh, at Bucky, and and it's a, I mean, it was once a three hundred herring boats used to be in Bucky Harbour, um, you know, it was quite a hub of the herring industry. So it's you know, it's, there's now there's shipbuilding at the far end. There's still fishing boats, not as many, um, and there's work boats for the. So it's you know, it's an industrial harbour. Um, it's not particularly picturesque like some of the other you know quaint. Um, coastal towns and even coastal villages that have fishing harbours it's much more industrial but I've always liked that I've always worked in industrial estates in all my jobs um so I like that feeling of this is a workplace people are you know here to graft um and I am lucky enough to be right opposite <laughs> the right opposite one of the piers. Uh, I'm in a little yard. Uh, I'm in an old shed uh, that's been there since the 40s. Um, and people don't expect it. Even the harbour master didn't know I was there till a few years ago. Uh, and he's only lived 50 metres down the road. Um uh, and I'll just love it when people come in because it's you know the the built the front shop at the, on the street front is you know is quite run down. Um, I don't have a sign on the gate or anything. Um, so when people do find me, they go in the door and they're like, oh, oh wow, you know they're not they weren't expecting a little mill, <laughs> a little a little bit of sort of vintage. Uh, vintage machinery and victoriana in this in this sort of rundown little shed on the harbour front um but actually it's it's so nice because it's so unexpected yeah 
I can confirm that Bucky probably isn't the centre of uh, the tourist universe in no, Scotland no. because I'm just holding a book now called The Love of Scotland, produced yeah. with the assistance of the Scottish Tourist Board. Yeah. Uh, lots of picturesque Bucky. photos of Scotland. <laughs> Bucky not mentioned. <laughs> nope. <laughs> And I don't know yeah, if they made a point of not mentioning it. Yeah, and, not mentioned. and yeah, I'm on the coast. Uh, there's, I mean, there's lovely little villages and little beaches, and it, it is actually on either side of Bucky. It's, it's really, really pretty. Um, and uh, you know, not far. I mean, the the Cairngorms is only really an hour and a, an hour and a bit drive away. Um, you know, an hour. And, an hour and a bit to Inverness, and as soon as you get past Inverness, you've got you know the highlands and the mountains with the snow, and so I, I probably don't make as much of my location as I could do. But as I said, it's it's mostly down to time. Um, thank, thankfully, in a way, I'm too busy. Now you mentioned social media and sharing on social media, and I have noticed over the last week or so. You have been sharing a lot of images which look like straight up engineering. Yeah. <laughs> How hard is it to keep a Hattersley running oh, and work with it? Really hard. Really hard. Uh, well, you know, it depends on who you are, where you are, and what access you have to people who know what they're doing, really. Um, from my point of view, I mean, I was really, really lucky that because I'd been working in the Hebrides, um, I was able, I was working with a lady called Sheila Roderick, who was running courses on the Hattersley. Um, so her boss, who was sort of running the courses, really, um, had been collecting looms for a long time. So I was able to get my loom through Sheila, and it's a it's a it's a mongrel. There's there's there was brand new bits on it and second hand older bits. Um, so but I knew that I'm not an engineer. Um, and much as I, I mean, Dad used to get us to do all our car maintenance and change spark plugs and stuff like that. But that you know that was about as engineering as my experience was. Um, uh, I knew I wasn't going to be able to build this from scratch on my own. It's just not my kind of thing. Uh, I'm a designer, weaver, maker. I had to, I had to have this. If the, if this is going to be a business, I needed to pay somebody, a professional that knew what they're doing, to come and set it up for me. So that's what I did. And Sheila, very gladly, because there aren't many many people that are going to want to do that for you. Um, so she organised, put the loom together in the Hebrides, dismantled it. I went over in a van, collected all the parts, brought them back. Sheila came over a couple of weeks later and came for a week, basically helped me build it, test it, blah, blah, blah. The day after she left, uh, so everything was running perfectly fine, uh, the kind of half day that we had or the day we had weaving. Must have been a bit longer than that. Um, and then, of course, the day after she left, something stopped working. The beam didn't go round. What do you do? You know, uh, it's the sort of thing that I think for most people, they need to be there to be able to see it, to help you, because there's so many bits and pieces moving. Um, 
you know, so the long story short, it took me uh, a good couple of years and I was going nearly every day. I had two days work a week um, at Johnson's and then my other five days I would be at the shed at some point doing something for at least two to eight hours. Uh, and there was one six-week phase where I just was getting nowhere, and I went every day <laughs> in the cold in February uh, because I put my life savings into it, and I didn't have a choice. You know, I had to make it work somehow, but I didn't have any money to hire somebody else, and I'm not. I don't like asking favors. If I need your professional advice to help me fix something, I need to be able to pay you. So if I didn't have any money, I couldn't pay you. So even if I could find somebody. Uh, I had to do it myself, and it seemed to me that, and I was always le- I was already learning by then that if you fixed one thing, something else would come up the next day. Uh, so, so it, you know, there was no point in getting spending five hundred quid or something to get somebody over from the Hebrides to to come and sort something, and they go away the next day and something else comes up. So uh, that's why it took me so long. <laughs> To, to get the business really underway because, and I think, honestly think that was my background of working as a professional that, you know, you get one chance to go out to your customer and make an order for them. If, if you get it wrong, you know, you've blown it. So uh, I had to be really confident that I could make something to the standard as I was expected to buy when we were, bringing fabric in from famous mills in Italy, uh, I, I expected my cloth to be as good as that. So it took a while. So, I mean, to this day, I'm still, I've got one part of my loom that is is my nemesis. Uh, if anybody's with a Hattersley, they'll know the sliding cam. Um, and you know, I've I have sometimes I have the camera stand set up permanently because every day I have to watch what it's doing. Because last yesterday it was working fine, and today it's not. So I spend hours, hours. <laughs> did, did, yeah. you ever, uh, did you ever at any point think, um, sod this, get a modern loom? Um, didn't have the money. Didn't have the money. stuck. Very stuck. Yeah. Didn't have the money. I don't have uh well uh yeah. Didn't have the money. No savings, no pension. Uh it's what was what comes out. <laughs> you know, I didn't have an option really. I mean I guess I had an option, but uh as a you know, I could have given up and I wouldn't have had the money to buy modern loom. Uh I mean my loom was two hundred and seventy four pounds. Uh, but then I spent thousands a year on the, you know, set up and ordering yarn and testing things and all that kind of thing. Um, to, to get a modern loom, I, I dread to think how much it would cost. I mean, if a Griffith, if you've got a, one of the new, like the double width looms, I mean, I think they're about 30, 35 grand now, but you need a full size warping mill to go with that so it's not just the loom it's all the other bits of machinery that go with it as well and then you have to weave a fair few meters before you've even paid for it absolutely absolutely 
So, yeah, well, it still wasn't an option, but but I was doing things on a very a small scale, and um, I mean, in some ways, the it's you know you get a love hate relationship with them. if 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 you if you can manage to get past the frustration, uh, you know, I kind of wouldn't want to do anything else now, and it certainly is a hell of a lot easier eight years down the track than it was the first three years. Um, now when things go wrong, I've got a fairly good idea what I need to do, but you still need to fiddle to get it right. <laughs> it's not it's not like you because there's a manual that says, okay, for for this, turn the dial to three and turn that dial to four and off you go. There's, there's so much that's because it's so... Um, interconnected uh you know you just get one bit wrong on one part and it sets off all you know you have to adapt all the settings on everything else so um yeah i have noticed that uh, daniel harris at london cloth company can't stop accumulating yeah um, clapped out looms in various states of disrepair yeah that's not me (laughs) i've definitely got enough (laughs) I have wondered at how sensible it could be, but uh, he seems happy. Well, exactly. I mean, that's what I, th- I think he, he is an absolute loom magician, loom geek. Uh, but that's not real. I mean, I, I do that because I have to, and I do love them because it never ceases to amaze me how clever they are uh, and how the hell anybody worked out how to build these things when there wasn't even calculators, um, you know, because yeah, they're just mind blowing. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not out to collect old machines. Old machines isn't my thing. The cloth is my thing. Um, and it's just an added one emotional two marketing, uh, benefit that I happen to love them. I have to admit, I would really like to own a Hattersley, but I have no idea what I'd use it for. Yeah, well, I was kind of a bit like that. With that was when I first saw them, and 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 even getting the first one, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. But I suppose by then I kind of trusted that I had the background, at least, and the experience of product development and selling and all that kind of thing that I would think of something. <laughs> uh, but it did take me a long time. I mean, I think a big difference is whether you want to make any money out of it. You you, well, you can get a happily, but unless you're going to spend hours getting to learn how it works, uh, I mean, in your case, you could you could make any amount of cloth and, and have it made into things for you to wear, presumably. <laughs> But yeah. you, might, you might have, yeah, you might go a bit mad in the process, that's all. I have to admit, I do like the idea of knowing where cloth comes from and having things made and sensing a greater value in just, in that, than just picking something off a shelf somewhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't know, I'm even just saying this now, I've never really actually thought about it, but I don't know if I feel... I get that because I did it myself. You know, I, I remember I've got a photo somewhere of my 
you know, my first big tweed coat that I made when I was at college and, a, you know, a raglan sort of thing. And actually it looks just like the cloth I make for Anderson Shepherd now. And it's like, there's, a, there's a bit nicer. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think part of the the good fortune of trying to set up my little business at this particular time is so many exterior uh, factors and you know in terms of sustainability in the fashion industry all those sort of things the slow movements those are things that people are really reappreciating um I mean, the mum and dad's day, well, mum's day, I mean, she made all our, all our clothes growing up. So, of course, we hated them because we weren't like all the shop board stuff that the cool kids had. Um, whereas now, I think, you know, you walk down the street and you see somebody that's wearing something different. And if, if you know a little bit, you've probably got a good idea. They either had it made for them or they made it themselves. And you go, gosh, wow, look at that. That's that's something desirable and uh, it's got a special energy about it. And, um, yeah, and so it's, you know, it's a, it's a privilege to be a part of that. And I, I love it when the customers love what I do. You know, you, ca- you can't feel better than that, than somebody really appreciating what you do. Now, speaking of sustainability, mm-hmm. is that something you are very conscious about in what you do? It's. I think it's a really interesting one. When um, the short answer is more now, but where I worked at InStyle in Australia, uh, we. I feel that sustainability into the textile industry was something we were massively focused on uh, 20 years ago. Um, And my boss had the foresight um, to massively commit as a company to sustainability in the best possible way that he could or um, uh, 20 years ago. For a small company of 30-odd people, he hired a textile technologist who became our sustainability manager. Um, she spent two years working with the wool board. Um, we, we bought the rights for a, a, a bunch of research that they did, which they called Life textiles which is low impact for the environment and looking at all aspects of the life cycle of wool and um i mean this was a massive phd type document i think um uh, and we took that on board and we worked our way through it through the whole supply chain looking at uh, pesticide content in the fiber uh, shearing uh, all the processes after that. So we did this massive program So um, and launched collections of cloth for interior textiles based on sustainability years ago. Um, uh, when I first wanted to come back to Scotland, my idea at that point was actually I wanted to s- 
I'd never always fancied studying again. Uh, and I wanted to do sustainable design. Couldn't find a course. Um, the, there was it was just starting in England. Um, there was there was a couple of lecturers writing books and doing stuff. Kate Fletcher was was talking about it a lot, and she was in one of the courses. But it was kind. It still wasn't really mainstream. Um, and in the end, when it turned out, I found out that actually because I'd been in Australia so long, I'd have to pay overseas student fees. So there was no way I was going to be able to afford it anyway. Uh, I kind of gave up on that idea. Um, uh, so I kind of feel that everything that's happening now um, should have been happening quite a long time ago um, and, and just hasn't. But so when I sort of started my business, I don't talk about sustainability in my business more, I think, because I'm very aware of when we did that work at InStyle, the commitment. We had a textile technologist who, you know, could tell you the pros and cons of every chemical <laughs> in every process so um, we knew that when we went to market, we knew our stuff. And, and that was disseminated to all the sales staff. We had conferences on it, and blah, blah, blah. Um, we went to the, we took the whole sales conference. I missed that one, unfortunately. We went to the whole, took, went to the farm to meet the sheep, all the salespeople running around the field with the merinos. And, uh, you know, we learned about sort of the sustainable land practices and, uh, types of grasses and all this is a fabric sales company you know fabric company um so when i started up my little business i knew that i didn't have the technical background info to do it properly so i didn't want to do it um and also as a in the supply chain i'm so tiny you know for me to go to i mean i do ask my yarn suppliers where the yarn, yarn comes from. Um, but even 10 years ago, uh, not people weren't being asked. They weren't really always keen to tell you. Um, and there was no way they were going to be digging out the pesticide content of the yarn because they probably didn't know because it, they would have been buying through a supply chain as well. So I just felt like unless I can do it really well, I don't really want to say that's what I'm doing. Um, I, I, I suppose I'm working on the principle of, I mean, obviously what I'm doing is uh, it's, sm it's small-scale economy, it's local, it's, um, well, it's not always local because I ship around the world, but um, I suppose... I'm letting people see what I do and how I do it and hope that they make their own call on on that. Um, from a sustainability point of view, I guess my only real positive might be that, you know, I'm trying, I work in a market and sell to people who want to appreciate the cloth and therefore there is a kind of built-in longevity and it's not throwaway culture. And I trust you treat your workforce properly as well. Uh, my sister gets um, 
a lot of coffee breaks. Uh, <laughs> uh, after that, you'll need to ask her. <laughs> it is fascinating, though, that the company in Australia 20 years ago were willing to do what must have cost them a lot of money with very few opportunities to brag about it on, say, social media. We had lots of opportunities. I mean, that was our whole selling. So, but, to, but today, most people doing sustainable stuff, it's, it does appear that they have bought sort of uh, wrapping paper from a sustainable source and they can brag about it on Instagram because they're so virtuous. Yeah. Well, that's where, I mean... Our sustainability manager. We had we had uh, a sustainability policy and uh, targets from the beginning. So Tracy, uh, Tracy had was had the keys to the stationery store, and if you needed a new pen, you had to ask for one. Um, <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> so you know she she uh, she had um, you know everything was monitored. We had targets. We it was done properly. Uh, so I think everybody had confidence, even if you might, everybody got on board with it. I mean, the, the asking Tracy for pens wasn't popular, but, um, you know, I think everybody could see that we were trying to do it properly. Whereas, and we had plenty of, because that was a big element of the, um, of the market at that time. Uh, so while our competitors were going out and saying they had uh, recycled polyester fabrics and that was green, I mean, one company rebranded themselves green such and such and just renamed all their products green this, green that. But a recycled polyester cloth in Australia would have been made from recycled bottles that were imported from America and we had nowhere to recycle the polyester in Australia at the end of its life. So that, mm. that one wasn't hard to argue. Um, so we did have plenty of opportunity, but our market was all in Australia. We weren't really selling over here. So um, it was very much within Australia. Um. We're reaching the end uh, of the podcast soon, but there was one thing I wanted to ask about. You mentioned right at the start, um, in your early days, you were taking photos of Heather and uh, the natural colours, and there is much made of the sort of tweediness of the hills and uh, all this. I, I was kind of surprised when I visited the Hebrides and a mill there and saw the actual yarns used and that they were dyed using not the sort of natural dyes, which I might have been led to expect, but actual sort of industrial dyes. And I know you use a lot of natural fibres as well. Mm -hmm. From So you're interested in the dyeing process? or I'm interested in talking about herdwick, sheep, natural fibres, uh, the opportunities of maybe using natural dyes. Uh, I don't, I've done a little bit of indigo dyeing in my kind of more hobby capacity. Um, my experience, again, I guess because my background was in commercial interiors and particularly in Australia where there's a lot of glass and a lot of sunlight, um, natural dyes would not have passed our industry standards for light fastness. Um, 
also I understand and I don't have a lot of knowledge at all but I I think for in the process of dying you would have something called a mordant which is kind of like the fixer or it might bring out certain colors I mean if you if you dyed a a fabric with onion skins, it might come out one colour, but if you dyed it with onion skins and a mordant, which might be, which would probably be some sort of mineral, I'm, I'm thinking iron or oxides or something, um, you might get a different colour, a deeper, brighter, stronger colour. So um, my very, very limited, pretty much know nothing about natural dyeing is that... Um, the processes and some of the additive chemicals might not be as friendly as the dye stuffs themselves. And from a commercial point of view, um, they're not as stable um, and therefore uh, light fastness is an issue. So especially where it was, you know, if, if you were selling a, a sofa and it's sitting in front of the sunlight and within three months, one half of the sofa's a different colour, your customer's not very happy. So it's just never been an area that kind of fitted what, what I do. And that's where the, the natural stuff that I do for for S.E.H. Kelly or Dobson Wood or James R- the Herdwick um it's lovely because it is a hundred percent straight off the sheep, uh, and it's. But but I know there's you know there's only a certain market for those natural colours. Um, why and I don't, and it kind of goes back a little bit to my small size, that to. For me to only supply cloth in natural shades, I wouldn't have the repeatability of cost. I dread to think what the cost would be. Um, I don't even know where I would get uh, natural dyed yarns. So it's just too big an issue for me in my little business. It might be for somebody else in another sort of business doing something different. Um, but it didn't work with my kind of business model. Does that sound? Yeah, I think that's very fair. And I think the issues of scalability are probably prohibitive. Mm. Uh, it's one thing uh, dyeing a few yarns of wool in indigo, but when you need masses of it. Well, I mean, Eva, I mean, I work with a number of different mills, yarn supplier mills. And, you know, as I said before, part of my, you know, you might have had one business. I could have maybe have had one business model where I said, OK, I'm only going to use uh, Herdwick wool. I'm only going to natural diet. Uh, I could find a dyer somewhere, some scale, probably very small. Um, but when I show you a sample that I've made you, when you get the bulk, it might be a different colour. Um, you know, there's all sorts of kind of risks in that. Um, so, the, But if you did that and you told the story and you said to your customer, well, here's the sample I've made you, but, um, you know, the bulk would be a different colour. As long as they know that, uh, then your expectations are in line. Um, so that could be one business model 
that it was just I opted for a different route where I, <clears throat> you know, I'm focusing on uh, basically design different cloth qualities. You can have something unique to you. Uh, so I'm I'm using a business model where I have the benefit of drawing off. I mean, I dread to think. I mean, one yarn shade card's got ninety six colours in it, and I probably have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen different yarns that I might use. Um. So I have the, you know, so let's say there's 50 in each, 15 times 50. How many hundreds of different yarns can I draw off by a kilo at a time, make you a sample for your cloth, and when you order the bulk, it's the right colour. So it's, it's, it's offering a different kind of service, I suppose. Hmm. Hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Sam, I've really enjoyed this. Oh, and thank you. Um, I've enjoyed. If, Thank you. If the listeners would like to see examples of the fabrics you've woven, we've mentioned Seh Kelly. Are there others who might have them in their current range? Uh, well, Anderson and Shepherd, um, Richard Anderson has uh, uh, in their house cloths. This is on Savile Row as well. Um, uh, Timothy Everest have. Well, they will. They had in their Ultimate last year, and there will be new ones. I think they come out in September, October. Um, who else? Go, go. Uh, yeah, I just. I mean, there are there are a number of tailors all over the place who have a, a little sample folder of different different cloths, but that's a kind of like evolving range of cloths. Um, yeah, I've gone blank, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'll put a link to SH um, Kelly. Yeah, follow Instagram, and uh, most most cases, things are, are sort of mentioned who they're for and where they're going. Um, just started shipping to Wildwood in, in Oregon, Portland, Oregon. Uh, they've got a new house tweed there. Um, I've fell to South Korea, uh, New York. Uh, where else? Of course, well, different places. <laughs> right. Well, there you go. Okay, Sam. Thanks a lot, and uh, bye bye. Thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that was all for this week's episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest this week was Sam Goats of Woven in the Bone. If you'd like to check out her work, you can find it on Instagram and on the web as Woven in the Bone. If you'd like to um, check out my blog, it's at welldresstad.com. I'm uh, your host, Nick Johannesson. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, it's welldresstad there as well. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or supporting it anyway, Please do get in touch. You can uh, find me at welldressedad at gmail.com. It would be a great help as it does actually cost a fair bit of money to put out every week. And uh, next week, there's a new episode. Something to look forward to. Until then, bye bye.